Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, church. Um, Our Bible reading today is going to be taken from John chapter 7, verses 1 to 21. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, After his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Now until halfway through the festival, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach? The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. He who seeks the glory of the one who sent me is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. He has not Moses given the law, yet no one, not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging me by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Father, we thank you for your word today. Your word is living and it is true and it has power. We ask for your word to come alive today and we pray, Father, that through our hearts and minds, that we may get an opportunity to get to know more of you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great job, Michael. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here of Westminster Chapel. Everyone is welcome in our church family. We are in week 14 of a wonderful series, it's called Amazing Love. It's a deep dive into 
John's gospel, John's first century biography about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who Time Magazine called the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of the world. So if you're here today and you're feeling like you're a little bit unstable in life, maybe you feel like you've been pulled in all sorts of different directions, you feel unstable, you're losing your footing, perhaps the rug has been pulled right from underneath your feet, this is the message for you. (laughs) Or if you're here and you feel that tension in your own heart of staying true to who you really are versus the pressure to conform and perform to other people's expectations, then you're in the right place. This is a message for you. And if you hadn't realized, that's really all of us now and certainly at some point in our lives. I think one of the hardest things in life is when people misjudge you. They don't really see you for as you feel you truly are. It's really difficult, isn't it? Now, that can be for two main reasons, I think. The first of those reasons would be that you've got a really inflated <laughs> um, view of yourself that isn't, this doesn't fit with reality, doesn't fit with how everybody else sees you. You need a more sober judgment of yourself. Maybe we'll get to that in a bit. But it can also be because people have um, misconceived ideas about you, preconceived ideas, prejudices about you, unfair expectations that you have to, to live up to that you just, you just can't, right? And, and you, you feel unfairly judged by all of that. And that really leads me to the first question of seven as we seek to try and resolve and answer some of these questions and tensions. The first of seven questions today, and and that is, have you ever been misjudged? Have you ever been misjudged? I think of the incident when Susan's, Susan Boyle got on the Britain's Got Talent platform. And she was almost booed off the stage before she was even allowed to sing. You can Google it, see it there, it's on YouTube. Because she did not look the part. And the whole crowd, even the judges were against her. And then she sang. Oof, wow. It was a standing ovation. She became a hit singer, platinum selling, blah, 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 blah. She was misjudged. There was a time when I first started uh, practicing as a criminal defense barrister. And I showed up in court one day expecting to be shown to the robing room where we get ready as lawyers before we go out kind of, and argue our case. And instead, that morning when I arrived, they showed me to where all the accused people go <laughs> to work out which court they're in. I was like, what are you judging about me? <laughs> Do I look too young? Do I look... Like a criminal, you know, my client actually was guilty. It's uh, another story. Uh, what is it? Do I not look right in my suit? I was misjudged. It wasn't nice. I'm sure you know what it's like to be misjudged. No one's been more misjudged in the history of this world or ever will be than Jesus. And if you look at this passage carefully, and I'd encourage you to have a Bible open just to make sure that I don't go off on my own anywhere that I want to be grounded in the scriptures. You'll see that Jesus is described, verse 12, as a good man. Just a good man, that's all though, not God. 
odd definitions out there of what a good man looks like. I just thought I would reveal that by showing you that movie <laughs> image. And then later in that same verse, he's called a deceiver, a liar, a fraud, a cheat. And then as we move on in the passage, verse 20, demon-possessed. He's a lunatic, a mad man. I tell you, Jesus knows what it's like to be misjudged. And because he knows, and because he's been the worst misjudged, when you're misjudged, he can come alongside you, he can identify with you, he can sympathize with you, he can comfort you. His name, after all, is Wonderful Counselor. This is great news, especially if you find yourself often like me as a church pastor, quite regularly misunderstood in different ways. But Christ is with me, and he knows and he cares, and he understands, and he can help me through. But there's more going on here. Jesus was misunderstood, and that means that it's so will his followers be misunderstood. In fact, it's a little bit worse than just being misunderstood. It says that they, Jesus was hated. Verse 7, can you see that there? John chapter 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Now, if Jesus was hated and we're his followers, then the world's going to hate us, it's going to hate you too. Now, for me, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of being hated. I don't like being disliked. If you go to our website, you'll read, I introduce myself as a recovering approval addict. <laughs> I struggle with the need to please people and for others to like me, to kind of make them happy. That's kind of how I look. So the, the concept of being hated, whoa. But maybe the best test for true Christianity is this, that we are hated. And if we're not being hated, there's something wrong. We're not truly following Jesus. Now, there are reasons why some Christians are hated, and they're hated for absolutely the right reasons, because they behave awfully, badly, terribly, proudly, in prejudiced ways, holding up placards, being all sorts of aggressive, doing wrong things. We're not talking about that <laughs> so much. We want to be hated for the right reasons for the same reasons that Jesus was. Now, we've mentioned the world already a little bit, so let's just back up and try and define what we're talking about. It's one of these words that's used in multiple ways, and that's quite familiar to us in the English language if you stop to think about it. The word day is used in multiple ways. A day, day can mean it's light outside. Day can mean a 24-hour period of time. A day can also be like an era, it was in her day that this happened. So you've got multiple uses of the same word. The same is true of this word world in the context of the scriptures. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it means the entire cosmos, the universe. John chapter 3, verse 16, it means humanity. For God so loved the world, humanity. And here in this context, when Jesus is talking about the world, he's talking about a secular anti-God or without the presence of God systems and practices and ways of operating. I like the way John Mark Comer describes it. He's got a great definition of the world, and this is a super book, Live No Lies. This is how he puts it. 
I'm on the right page, it would really help. And there we are. The world is what happens when a lot of people give in to their flesh and base animalistic desires are normalized. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. You, we, are always being squeezed into the world's way of thinking and its way of being. Often, perhaps most often, without even realizing it's happening. Let me give you a bit of a silly example of this. Um, some years ago, I lived and I worked in Kenya. Did it for about six months, helping, we were helping to get people wrongly convicted out of prison. And then I came back to the UK for a couple of years, and then I went back out there again to see the same Kenyan people, and I took teams out. We would go and visit what, we, what we'd been doing and what they were doing, uh, and it was great. Apart from when I would meet some of my Kenyan friends for the first time, they hadn't seen me in quite a few years, and they would sort of say, you know, like, Habariako, Howard, hello, or Sasa, Rafiki, that kind of stuff, how are you doing? Um, and they say, ah, oh, Howard, you've got fat. So the average Westerner, as you've laughed, that, that is an insult. To the typical Kenyan in 2008, it was a compliment. Just evidence that we had been culturally conditioned with a different definition of beauty by our different societies. Here's my second question. What wrong things does the world normalize? What wrong things has the world normalized? Just letting you think about some of these things to allow God moments to work in your mind. There's the obvious definition of, of beauty. <laughs> find beauty by externals, not internals. If we look at what's on the outside before we care about to find out what's really on the inside. But let me just give you two particular things. One of those things would be that you are, you are inherently, you're not inherently sinful. You're inherently good. And so you should look for the hero inside yourself. This is essentially the plot line of almost every Disney film um, that's out there. I won't go into those details today. Um, but it actually comes from a French philosopher. Um, well, not completely, but a key factor of that. He was called Rousseau. And he said, um, every man, product of his time, every person is born free, but everywhere they are in chains really significant phrase. What does it mean? Basically, it means that all the problems are outside of you. The problems are, 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 are to do with these corrupt institutions and oppressive systems of power that are operating outside of you. You've got to get away from all of that. You're okay. You yourself, you're good. You're fine. It's what's going on around you that's the problem and the issue. And so we, we retreat from that world or we look inward as a result of that. But that, what's so wrong about that is that 
all these corrupt institutions that they're unhappy with and all these unbroken systems of, of society are made up of individuals. And the reason they're corrupt is because we're corrupt <laughs> and it's amplified in those contexts. Here's the other one. Truth is relative, so do whatever feels good to you because that is your truth. You're the authority of your life. You, you, you get to decide what the truth is because that's how you, how you feel. You look inside, that's what you feel. That's, that's the best understanding that you could get for what's really, what's really true. And you see this so commonly today in counseling, right? Not all forms of counseling. I've had counseling. I'm a great believer in counseling. But some forms of counseling, they will put the person at the center. And your feelings right at the center, right at the middle. And, and they'll try and validate your victimhood and your identity and all the problems around. They don't put Christ there. They put you there. And you start to see it's just so eucentric. And your feelings are central. Now, your feelings matter, they're really important, they're real to you, but it's very possible that they're founded upon illegitimate reasons for you to have those feelings. Your perception of reality which has led to those feelings may be skewed, it may be flawed and wrong. Moreover, though, you've probably noticed this already, truth is relative is not a relative statement. It's self-contradictory, of course, because that is an absolute statement to say that. If truth is relative, then that statement is relative, which means it's meaningless. It's true for you, but not for anybody. It doesn't matter. It's illogical. You can start to see this is just nonsense. There's just nonsense out there in the world. I've heard other stuff like, if you're not married by 30, you have failed in life. You may as well give up. Or if you haven't had kids by that age, you never will. Just go away. You're, you're pointless. The world thinks nothing of you. All this stuff, you've probably heard it. Sometimes you feel like that way. It's nonsense. It's rubbish. So here's my question. The world wants to get you to march to its tune. How has its drumbeat taken hold of you? Think about that for a moment. Deliberately chosen those words. Tune, it's appealing, but it's a march. You think you're being unique, but you're marching in unison with everybody else. Jesus' brothers here, verses three and four, try to draw him into worldliness. I wonder if you noticed that. Did you see that there, what they're encouraging him to do? Jesus, if you want to be a big name, if you want to get a massive following, you better get yourself to the temple in Jerusalem, the big city for the big festival. Make a name for yourself. That's the way. It's kind of like get famous, get known. Jesus, come on. Set up your own website, howardsatterthwaiteministries.com. You know, start putting up social media. Do, all the, do some reels of the people that you've healed Go take some selfies with the chief priest so it looks like you're well credible and should be respected. All of that kind of stuff. Come on, Jesus. That's what you need to do. And don't you know they go on to say, verse 4, did you see it? No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Wrong. Massively wrong. That way leads to a life of people pleasing. It's exhausting. It's draining, always trying to keep people happy, being a chameleon, being what they want you to be, 
so that you feel good because they like you, but you lose your sense of self, you compromise your values, your sense of identity, and it drains you, and it makes you feel tired and weary, and you feel unstable, and you don't know where to go, or who to say yes to, or who to say no to. You're pulled in all these different directions. You've got no, no, nothing holding you down to say, this is who you are, and this is how you should be living. Jesus responds, verse 6. It's not quite my time yet. He says. And then he says something very provocative. For you, any time will do. For you, you just do whatever you want, whenever you want. You don't consider God or others, really. It's just about you, you yourself. Jesus did the will of his Father. Everything he did was in the Father's timing. Which leads me to this question. In whose hands is your time? Do you just presume that what you're doing is God's will? (laughs) Or do you pray and really seek his heart to know that you're walking in step with him? This is a really difficult subject because I I think there are moments when we often want to persuade ourselves to do the things that we want to do and we'll look to rationalize certain decisions in life. And when we rationalize, we tell ourselves rational lives to justify really what we want to do, which actually may not be what God wants to do. I, I think of Jonah, the prophet Jonah. God very clearly wanted the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh to go and tell them about his love. And he didn't want that to happen because he didn't like them. They were nasty and they just deserved judgment, not mercy. So where does he go? He goes to a place called Joppa. It's a port. And just as he arrives, at that moment that he arrives, to encourage him that he must be in the, in the will of God, a ship comes to take him in the exact opposite direction of Tarshish, that moment. He said, ah, I must be right about this. God can't want me to go to Nineveh because he sent a ship going right the opposite direction. And it's to a really nice place, by the way. It's for like a little sunny holiday by the seaside, little hotel resort complex. I know he wants me to have the most comfortable life imaginable. So that must be what his will is. Well, of course, it wasn't God's will. What about some of the bigger decisions in life, like where do you live and you're going to move house and stuff like that? And sometimes those reasons can be godly and sometimes they can be ungodly and we try and rationalize that. Maybe you're sat there at your computer thinking like, I'm just sensing that maybe God wants me to move. And then you get an email from Rightmove in your inbox which asks you this particular interesting question. How do you feel about where you live? Do you get what that question is trying to do? It's deliberately trying to stir up your dissatisfaction with where you currently live to get you to go on their website to generate more hits and engagement, which is going to make them more money. It's the world trying to conform you into its mold. And I'm obviously not against people moving. We have to move, but got to make our decisions in the will of God, in his timing, and be very aware 
of that temptation to rationalize our own human, earthly will rather than doing the Father's will. The world says no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. I believe Jesus would say everybody, everyone who is to serve God in public must act in secret. Because it's what happens in the secret place that qualifies us for public ministry. In the hidden place. What's happening when nobody else sees except God? In our prayer life, persistently, faithfully, on our knees in prayer. Persevering, doing the small things, the faithful things that others don't really see. Communion with God, worshipping him and loving him just for who he is. This leads me to my fourth question. How would you rate the quality of your hidden life with God? If you had to, if you gave yourself the score, what would it be? I'm not saying this to criticize you. I'm not saying this to condemn you. It's an invitation to recovery of intimacy with God, who's calling you and wooing you to draw closer, to go deeper. Notice what Jesus does, though. He's as wise as a serpent, and he's as innocent as a dove when it comes to the world. He doesn't retreat from the world. He doesn't become like the Amish, kind of bunker down, protect, never go near that stuff. It's toxic. And neither does he conform to the world, but he goes to the festival in his own way, in God's way, in God's timing. He doesn't live his life driven by the opinion of other people. He isn't controlled by fear either. Notice in verse 13, if you look in the passage, it says that others, they were were controlled by fear, afraid to actually speak their own minds or say what they really thought because they were afraid, full of fear. Here is Jesus He has every reason to be afraid. People want to kill him. (laughs) Chapter 5 is there. Chapter 7, verse 1, and then again in this chapter. They want to kill Jesus. Yet he has the courage to still go to the festival. He's willing to die so that we would have abundant life. How is he able to find such resolve? Have you thought about that? Jesus in his humanity... Fully God, fully man. But how in his humanity is he able to find the resolve and the strength to do something so, so, so terrifying and intimidating? Well, I think Isaiah chapter 11 gives us the answer. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. This is a prophecy about Jesus from the line of David. One will come. And this Christ, this Jesus, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Delight 
in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. How? Well, Jesus doesn't judge by mere appearances doesn't just judge by the way things hear or what, what he sees. He makes a right judgment. He looks to the heart of something, the substance. Because he delights in the fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord is not a terror, it's a joy. He delights in the grandeur and the magnificence and the beauty and the amazing, awesome mercy and grace, majesty of God. You see, the greatness of God is what grounds him. The providence of God, the good plan of God, and his assurance of that is what gives him peace. And he's absolutely assured, absolutely affirmed in his own identity because of what, who God is and what God says over him, that he's able to act with boldness. He has ringing in his ears from his baptism. This is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's the ultimate endorsement over his life that sustains him, that strengthens him. He's assured, he's loved, he's precious. He's part of God's plan. God is great. He delights in the fear and the majesty of the Lord. I don't know if you know what it's like ever to get a really nice endorsement. Um, only recently have I had that experience. In the process of writing our book, recent book, Spiritual Detox, um, we sent it off to a few people, and we, we kind of had written a lot of it up in lockdown, so I was in the office over there working, there was nobody else on site, and we had sent it out to a few people to see what they thought of it, and it's a moment of incredible vulnerability, because you're absolutely terrified that they're going to come back and say, this is rubbish, you're an idiot, this is terrible, we're not interested in that. And the first response I got back from somebody, um, perhaps the leading evangelist today uh, in our nation, J. John, was, thanks very much for sending it me. I'm just so busy at the moment. Um, I'd really love to read this, but I just, don't, I just don't think I have the time. And I just thought, oh, Lord, thank you. At least we've been spared a really bad reaction. Because <laughs> that's sort of like, that's medium, that's neutral. I'll take neutral at this point. Um, but then what happened is two days later, out of the blue, an email comes from him saying, I felt prompted to read it. I read it. I absolutely love it. And he said some wonderful words about this book. I think it's really important. I think you need to publish it. In that moment, I'm embarrassed to say that I shrieked like a pig for joy. <laughs> and I started jumping up and down the office, running around like, yes, finally, someone recognizes this. I'm endorsed. Isn't this amazing? Now, no one else was in the office, so they didn't see it, but uh, <laughs> J. John's brilliant, and he's a great evangelist, and I massively respect his opinion, but he ain't nothing compared to God. You need to hear that, and the cross demonstrates God's love. You know, while Jesus had his baptism, and God the Father, and he spoke, what about me? You've got the cross. 
you've got the cross where God screams and shouts with joy his love for you. You are my beloved child and I prove it by dying for you. This is how much you're worth. I love you and I'm pleased with you. That's how I see you now because of the cross and the resurrection. Wow, what an endorsement we have over our lives. So Jesus courageously comes to face his killers, compassionately to save us, the lost, to sign his own death warrant in doing so. Such is the love of God. And they are amazed at his teaching. Verse 15. They are amazed at his miracles. Verse 21. But they still can't believe that he is God. They still won't accept that he is, verse 18, the man of truth. Truth embodied, the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because of their own falsehood and their own hypocrisy. Sorry, smile, I'm going off at 12 as well. Um, it's awkward. Awkward moment as well. Hypocrisy. What was going on? Well, their own falsehood had blinded them from being able to see Jesus. What was this falsehood? Well, they were really, really angry at Jesus for healing a man on a Sabbath. It happens in chapter 5. This man has been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus comes along. You'd think this would be good news and heals him. Uh, it's work, by the way, on a Sabbath. You're not really allowed to do that. And then tells him, pick up your mat and walk. Picking up your mat is not allowed on a Sabbath. That's work, by the way. That's really bad. And they were angry. How dare this guy come and break the law? Who does he think he is? It's like, hello, he thinks he's a guy who can heal someone who hasn't walked for 38 years. But no, they can see that so Jesus pushes back a little bit in this passage you'll see it and he says hold on a minute don't you circumcise boys on the Sabbath now Jesus like any good lawyer like myself will know knew the answer to his question um, of course that's what they were doing they were doing work on the Sabbath but then Jesus pushes a little bit further some of you here are trying to kill me. Isn't there a commandment in the first part of the Bible? It goes something like this, thou shalt not murder. I mean, I mean, hello. Do you, do you see the problem? And Jesus is, is trying to challenge them to see the blindness to their own sin, which is then blinding them from seeing who Jesus really is. And this is our problem as well. And Jesus would want to come and he'd want to say, stop pretending and start perceiving. You need to deal with this fact. Get rid of your pride and your arrogance. Stop looking at the speck in others' eyes and see the plank in your own. And if you get rid of that plank through confession of sin, you'll be able to see Jesus more than you've ever seen him before. This leads me to my sixth question. What sin or sins do you need to own, confess, turn from to see Christ more clearly? Let me just say, if nothing came to your mind in that moment, it's definitely pride. <laughs> if you've been sat here thinking like, oh, I wish 
my friend was here to hear this sermon. It's definitely pride. <laughs> I'm sorry. They weren't willing to own their sin. They were too interested in their own personal glory. This goes back to chapter 5, verse 44. If you want to do a further study of that, you can. They were too interested in what other people thought about them, their reputations, their image. They didn't want to be humiliated in such a way, especially before others. I tell you, I've wasted so much time in my life worrying about what other people think about me. And it's utterly stupid because so often people's opinions are misinformed. They don't know all the facts. By definition, they can't. Only God can. And they're often fickle. They change their mind because the weather's changed and they woke up and they slept better, so they're feeling a little bit different. And, and this is, I know that because that's what I'm like. But when we value people's opinions too much, God inevitably becomes smaller to us. And fear and anxiety and worry start to metastasize like a cancer within. You see, your life may be out of sorts because you have the wrong gravitational source. You may be unsteady, uncertain, struggling, feeling pressure and pulled in different directions because instead of Jesus being at the center, you are. Instead of the Messiah being in the middle, me is there. My culturally conditioned wants, needs, feelings. And just as the earth doesn't have the gravitational strength to hold our solar system together, let alone the light and the warmth and the heat, it doesn't make sense. Neither do we. We can't put ourselves, it won't work if we're in that position. Our planet earth is much better off orbiting the sun. And your life will be much better off orbiting the S-O-N, Son, Jesus Christ. Finding your strength, your value, your worth, your identity, your anchor in him. And in what he says about you. You see, the key to resolving these tensions of how do you stay true to who you are and not conform, not just perform, and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what it is? It's by making a right judgment about Jesus and not misjudging him. When you make a right judgment about him, about who he is, you start to see the greatness and the glory and the mighty and the majesty of God. When he says, I came to save you because I love you and I've paid the penalty for your sin by dying for you, you're clean. When he says that, you start to get a sense of how precious and how valuable you are because he says it. And you start to know that this is who I am and this is how I should live and this is what I should say yes to and this is what I say no to. And you recover a sense of intimacy and closeness with the God who made you and you start to hear this is what his will is. I don't need to listen to the world anymore. I just want to listen to his voice and do what he says. There's great encouragement here for us because even Jesus' worldly half-brothers got this. Remember them? 
from verses 3 and 4. Jesus, go off and do this. You need to get famous and all of that. They didn't believe at that point. But after Jesus rose from the dead, they did. They did. Acts chapter 1 tells us that. So does um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's amazing because that means that they so believed that he was God, they were willing to die for him, and they did die for him. So confident were they that he defeated the grave, that he'd overcome death, that's what they did. This is is really hard to do. Just think about this for a moment. Could you persuade a member of your family that you're God? I couldn't do that. They know I'm a sinner. I've messed up so many times, it's just, it's great. It's obvious. It was possible for Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? They believed. This is a a proof of the reality that Jesus is God and he's worthy of following. But also it's a huge encouragement to us. No matter how worldly we are, there's hope. Hope to be transformed. Because Jesus' brothers were saved and rescued. So can we be. So I'm beginning to wrap up now. Final question. How can we live in this identity? How can we live in this love? Well, we go back to the secret place. It's about being in the hidden place. Drawing close to God. Hearing his voice. I'll give you three specific practices for that. The first of those that I'd encourage you to do is to regularly, daily, ideally, pray through Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. It's really simple. I do this at 12 o'clock. That's actually why my my watch was going off. Every day, very short, very simple. What is Romans chapter 12, verse 2? It's about, therefore, because of the mercy of God, I'm living out of his mercy. He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. He's gracious to me. That's what drives me. My motivation, my energy, my strength is is all built out of his sacrifice, what he's done for me. I am living in response to grace. Therefore, and then I'm not going to be conformed to this world. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but by the renewing of your mind, be transformed. And I'm going to take a moment to stop and to say, I'm not going to let this worldly culture and its lies define me or how I live because I know I'm in a battle and I'm going to constantly be hearing this all the time. Every time I pick up my phone, my screen, everything I'm doing, it's there amplifying at me. So this is a moment to detox from the world. And then it talks about seeking to do God's good, pleasing and perfect will. Having done that, I can retune and recalibrate. Okay, Lord, what is your will? What does it look like? I don't do what the world does, but I want to do what you do. That's the first practice. The second practice is to get in our prayer room (laughs) as often as you can. Or another, I would call it thin space. I believe that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But there are certain places where you have faith to meet and encounter God. And our prayer room is not some place where you have to go and, oh, I have to sign up and pray through a whole list of stuff and I've got to work. It's a place of encounter. It's a place of refreshment. It's a place to be revitalized in the presence of God, just to sit and know him, to worship, to enjoy him. Yeah, you can be inspired to pray as well. That's fantastic. Our heart was to create a place where you could go and meet with God and just enjoy his presence and sit before the fire of his love and let him set you aflame and ablaze again. We even have a fire, like a 
pretend fire in there where you can just take your shoes off and kneel before God, just as Moses did. The burning bush, the fire of God, yet the bush wasn't consumed, and we want the fire of God's love on us that we are not consumed to be set ablaze again for his glory. It comes through intimacy. It comes from the place of prayer. I just want to encourage you. You can do that here. You do that wherever you need to do that. But you need, you're being invited back to have your heart set on fire again for the Lord. The third thing may, you may find more challenging, the third practice is to go and make a list of everybody who has ever hated you or disliked you. Let's broaden it out. And then you're to pray for them every day for at least a week for God's blessing, God's favor, his anointing, his love, his mercy, that they would know him better than you know him. Because the love that we have in our hearts is stronger than death. The love that we have received is greater than hate. And that is our witness to the world. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We show a completely different way. And in doing so, we reveal that the love we have is not a love simply of this world. It is a love from above. The awesome, holy, almighty God proved it by dying for us. Let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, forgive us for where we have followed the ways of this world. Forgive us for where we have lived like Jonah. Forgive us for where we've tried to rationalize and justify worldly things, even simple things. Pursuing wrong relationships, wrong moves, wrong opportunities. Lord, help us to be stand out different. Help us to be countercultural. Help us to hear your voice so much louder above the noise of this world. Help us to see its lies. Help us to expose its deceit. Help us not to walk in tune with it, but to walk in step with you all the way. Lord, we praise you. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that you're so merciful. And Lord, we ask that your love would fill our hearts right now, would transform us, would change us, that we would hear that ringing endorsement, you screaming and shouting with joy how much you love us. Come, come in the rest of this service, set us free. Liberate your church, liberate your church, that we might fully Thanks for listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.